Good evening. Good evening. What a wonderful crowd here tonight. Who's speaking? <laughs> My name is Lewis Pogue, and on behalf of the First United Methodist Church and the Reconciling Conversations group that is part of this uh, church, I welcome you to tonight's uh, presentation concerning some very important and serious matters that are before us as United Methodist Church. Um, we are privileged to have uh, Bishops Camera and McCleskey with us tonight. They consider them our bishops, actually. <laughs> but they are so gracious to give of their time and their energy and their wisdom to share with us as an update uh, for what has been going on uh, with the Council of Bishops most recently. They attended the meeting of the Council of Bishops and, and will have firsthand uh, knowledge of what went on there and they, they're going to share it with us here tonight. Um, we had a little preview, I guess I was out of the country at the time uh, when uh, uh, Bishop Carter <laughs> was here and had a presentation on the way forward process. And, they presented uh, their report to the Council of Bishops, and then the Council of Bishops are now, have now decided what they're doing with it, and that's what we're going to hear about tonight, primarily. Um, so we give thanks uh, to our two resident bishops, and um, they will be speaking to us shortly, as soon as I left them. Uh, but first, we're going to have a prayer together, so if you don't mind, let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the opportunity to be here tonight. We've come because we care deeply about our denomination's future. And we want to be aware of the options that are being considered by our church leadership. We pray that your spirit will surround our minds and our hearts as together we listen and think about and question and discuss what will be shared with us tonight. Bless our bishops now as they do share with us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Good evening, everyone. Good evening. As a way of getting into the presentation tonight, I wanted to share a brief reflection with you about who the Council of Bishops is. Imagine with me a Council of Bishops that represents all of the United States and many places in Europe, Africa, and the Philippines, a council of bishops that have present 65 active bishops and almost 50 retired bishops at our recent meeting in Chicago. Men and women, every geographical jurisdiction in the U.S., and all the central conferences, which means United Methodist annual conferences outside the U.S. Imagine with me bishops from the early 40s 
to mid-80s in age, representing different generations. Some bishops for whom English is not their first language, some of whom need translation services to fully participate in the meetings. Bishops who truly reflect racial, ethnic, cultural, and tribal identity. Imagine with me that beginning every day with covenant groups and worship, reflecting on scripture with word, song, prayer, and liturgy. Covenant groups are usually about 12 uh, bishops led by a bishop, and I happen to lead one this quadrennium. They include women and men, active and retired bishops, representatives from each of the jurisdictions, and Africa, the Philippines, and Europe. So every 12-member small group is representative of who the United Methodist Church is. The richness of diversity is very apparent in each small group. And it is our task as disciples to perfect the art of listening, to honor each other's stories, to invite from each other honest reflection, to stay in touch throughout the year, ongoing prayer requests being lifted up, and the tending of each other's souls. <coughs> now imagine with me meeting in a big plenary room with round tables where we bishops gather to worship, study, have small group discussions, and act on the urgent business before us. Guests, including spouses, members of the press, caucus groups, interested United Methodists are invited to sit in the gallery section in the room. And we are led by an elected team of officers who we value highly. Imagine then with me how wonderful it is to be part of such a company and how hard it is to cross those cultural barriers and how challenging it is to find consensus and be assured of the leading of the Holy Spirit in all things. Imagine with me how much humility and discernment is needed of such an extraordinary and gifted group of spiritual leaders for the United Methodist Church. And imagine with me how much we have coveted your prayers and your participation as we journey together to find a way forward for our beloved United Methodist Church. We wanted to share this context of who the <coughs> Council of Bishops is as we now present an overview of the bishops' uh, actions and our recommendations following the completion of the work of the Commission on the Way Forward. Bishop McCleskey will begin by speaking to the mission, vision, and scope of the mandate that was placed before us. Good evening. Good evening. It's really a pleasure and a privilege to share with this group. We were in Chicago two weeks ago meeting that Bishop Cameron was imagining with you and the worship 
and uh, meals and some of the business were, were all conducted in open session. The discussions of this report and the uh, decisions about it were all conducted in executive session where just the bishops were present and some persons from the commission uh, and uh, church agencies who had particular need to be there. What I want to do is, is remind you of the thing that got us to this meeting and then the context in which the report came to the bishops. If you heard Bishop Carter, and, and many of you, if not all of you did, I'm, I'm not going to uh, do, uh, go at great length to, and repeat what he said, but just as a reminder, in May of 2016 at the General Conference in Portland, the delegates voted to ask the bishops to form a commission to explore options uh, to look for a way forward for the church around these issues in ways that maintained and strengthened the unity of the church. 32 member commission was put together representative of the whole global uh, makeup of the church, of the clergy laity makeup of the church, of the theological diversity uh, within the church. That group has met nine times uh, over a period of about 19 months. They just concluded today their last meeting, taking what the bishops did two weeks ago and putting it into its final form uh, for editing and uh, translation. The full report with all of the details of the recommendations will be released once it has been edited and translated into the languages of the General Conference and the languages that are uh, required uh, for that purpose are of course English, French, Portuguese, and Swahili. So there's quite a job that is underway. Uh, it'll be probably uh, early July when that's uh, completed. At the outset of the process, and here I'm to help us distribute those. I want to walk through this with you. At the outset of the process, this document was developed to guide the work of the commission and to guide the decision process of the Council of Bishops. They began not emphasizing the differences, but trying to find some common ground. And so this paper was developed. If you look at the side that says mission, vision, and scope in big words, and I'll get to the other side in just a minute. <coughs> this has guided the work of the commission and it guided our discussions a couple of weeks ago. From the beginning, the commission worked to find a new way of being related to one another across the various differences in the life of the church. They agreed to come together and explore the potential for the future of the denomination uh, with a profound hope and confidence in God. 
God, the Triune God, uh, with concern about the fact that uh, that much of the transformative work that's done by the church is done collaboratively. We do it together, and this was to this mission was to inform uh, the uh, work of the commission and the council. The vision that they set for themselves had three what I would call hoped-for outcomes. First, find a way, design a way to be church that maximizes the presence of the United Methodist Witness in as many places in the world as possible. They, they weren't asking initially, how does that happen? But they think this is what we want to work on, maximize the presence of the church. Number two, design a plan that would allow for as much contextual differentiation as possible. That has to do with theological differentiation, it has to do with geographical differentiation, cultural differentiation. Uh, when you gather people from all across the globe, uh, you find that culturally, theologically, there are vast differences in how we express and live out the faith. How can a plan be designed that would allow for as much cultural, much contextual differentiation as possible? And then, number three, balance an approach to different theological understandings of human sexuality with the desire for as much unity as possible. How can we be as unified as we can be with the differences in understandings around the issue of human sexuality? And all of this set in the context of an affirmation of the triune God. In terms of the scope, I would just mention a couple of things out of this paragraph. Look, the commission initially said we want to look for new ways of being in relationship. We want to find new ways of being the church with all these differences, new ways of transcending the differences and yet recognizing the differences. And so in doing that, they gave consideration to greater freedom and flexibility for the church which would redefine what it means to be connectional. And so that was at, at the, the base of what they were trying to do. Uh, believing that God would lead the church in these ways. This is a critically important document to understand the work that came out of the commission to bishops. Now if you turn over to the other side, they work with a theological framework and I'm not going to go through all of this, but I want to, uh, to give you just a, a bit of, of the biblical reference. You will notice here uh, a framework that, uh, that was put together actually by members of the commission and members of the Committee on Faith and Order, which is a general conference established committee involving bishops and folks in our ecumenical and interreligious work uh, area. 
Recognize first that we're an ecumenical church. There are three scripture references there. I simply will call in your mind what they are. Acts 2 is the Pentecost story. And uh, you'll want to go and spend some time with these, but you recognize there immediately the diversity of that crowd in uh, uh, that early church gathering. John 3 contains the story of Nicodemus's visit to Jesus and uh, the uh, first encounter of Jesus and John the Baptist. And of course it, may, uh, it contains uh, that most famous of all verses of scripture, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. And then Genesis chapters one and three, uh, chapter one dealing with creation, chapter three dealing with sin. We're an ecumenical church created by God, consisting of the persons created in the image of God, consisting of imperfect persons, consisting of persons representative of a huge, huge diversity. Second, grace and holiness. There are a couple of uh, biblical references that inform the work of the commission there. Romans 5, Paul's great chapter on justification by grace. Spend some time with that. Uh, it's uh, it, it, we're we're grounded in the unconditional pardoning grace of God. And Mark 12, which contains several parables and teachings of Jesus, but particularly contains uh, Mark's account of the great or the first commandment: to love God with all our heart. The work is grounded in an understanding of grace and of holiness as love toward God and neighbor. The third part of that, connection and mission, Philippians 2 and Matthew 28. Philippians 2 has that wonderful hymn of the ancient church, uh, have this mind among you which was in Christ Jesus who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself form of a servant. And Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Again, a church uh, grounded in an understanding of, of, of seeking the mind of Christ and extending and sharing the mind of Christ with the world. And then number four, and in some ways, though all of these are of equal importance, but in some ways uh, of these four, one that has been particularly significant in the work of the commission and in the discussion of bishops, a convicted humility. And there are three chapters from 1 Corinthians that are referenced there, 12, 13, and 14. Those are the chapters in which Paul talks about spiritual gifts and in which he talks about which is the greatest gift, the chapter of love, uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, I read just the, the last part of, of this uh, particular one. We seek to advocate a stance we have called convicted humility. This is an attitude which combines honesty about the differing convictions which divide us with humility about the way in which each of our views may stand in need of correction. It also involves humble repentance for all the ways in which we have spoken and acted as those seeking to win a fight 
rather than those called to discern the shape of faithfulness together. That's a huge, hugely important sentence. We're not involved in this to win a fight, which is what the church has been uh, doing, trying to do for the last 40 years. But rather, we're trying to discern the shape of faithfulness together. And then finally, uh, that highlighted uh, on the bottom left, we remain persuaded that the fruitfulness of the church and its witness to a fractured world are enhanced by our willingness to remain in relationship with those who share our fundamental commitments to scripture and our doctrinal standards, and yet whose views of faithfulness in this regard differ from our own. Uh, it's my judgment that uh, in the work of the commission and in the meeting of the Council of Bishops a couple of weeks ago, that was quite, quite evident. I'm going to wait and share the handout that I have because it's a bit more detailed and I don't want all the heads buried in the paper. <laughs> so just invite you to listen carefully now to a summary of the plan that the Council of Bishops is recommending for consideration to the delegates of this specially called 2019 conference. And the copies are ready and we'll distribute those um, when I finish. And, um, the Council of Bishops, working in tandem with the Commission on the Way Forward, thoroughly reviewed three different options that came through the 19 months of work on the Commission on the Way Forward. And this review didn't just happen in this meeting in Chicago. We've been reviewing them as they were being birthed, as they were being perfected by the Commission, there's been back and forth, there have been suggestions along the road by members of the Council of Bishops uh, going back to the Commission, think about this, please consider this, what about this angle, how will it impact this constituent group or uh, this matter over here. So it's been a work in process and I just want to assure you that it didn't just take a week for the Council of Bishops to come to this recommendation. It's been a process, a journey, a very carefully prayed over and thought through process with ongoing and unending conversations among us and the people where we live and serve. What we are recommending is the One Church Plan. Now, in church press and in uh, regular press, you will probably see named three plans. One is called the traditionalist option. One is the one church plan. And the third would be connectional conferences plan. When we presented for you earlier that connectional conferences option, we were calling it the multiple branch option because at that point, that's what it was named. 
but basically that, although it's been strengthened and more detailed, that is now the Connectional Conferences plan. So let me summarize um, the One Church plan for you and assure you that when the council took the vote, it was a very strong vote, very clear what we did. And in our 22 years of service in the Council of Bishops, both active and retired, um, it was one of the strongest votes I've ever witnessed. Because remember that diversity I described to you earlier, it doesn't matter what the topic is, we'll have diverse opinions in the Council of Bishops, which you want to a certain degree. And this was a very, very strong vote. The One Church Plan provides a generous unity that will give conferences, churches, and pastors the flexibility to reach their missional context without disbanding what we know as the connectional nature of the United Methodist Church. In the One Church Plan, no annual conference, bishop, congregation, or pastor will be compelled to act contrary to their convictions. The plan will maintain the leadership structure of the United Methodist Church, including the Council of Bishops, the General Conference, and the Annual Conferences as one body and one church. It offers greater freedom to many who desire change, but who do not want to violate the Book of Discipline. In this plan, voting would be kept to a minimum except where it might be helpful. There is no mandate in this plan that would require a local church, a conference, or a pastor to participate in a vote that divides, segments, or separates. The United Methodist Church would remain in connection, upholding the unity of mission without uniformity of practice upholding the unity of our mission as United Methodist Christians without uniformity of practice. The plan grants space for traditionalists to continue to offer ministry as they have in the past, space for progressives to exercise freely a more complete ministry with LGBTQ persons, in our church, and space for all United Methodists to continue to coexist without disrupting their ministries. And to me, that kind of describes our congregation. We've continued for a long time to not only coexist, but to thrive as the first United Methodist Church here in Waynesville with no disruption in our ministries, and I would say our, our witness. Additionally, the plan will create space for annual conferences in various parts of the world to practice ministry according to their national or regional context. Remember Bishop McCleskey's explanation of contextuality, which is simply descriptive of how we've been. It's not something new. It's almost like we're naming it 
and describing the richness in our diversity. The One Church Plan will remove the language from the Book of Discipline used in the United States that restricts pastors and churches from conducting same-gender weddings and annual conferences from ordaining self-avowed practicing homosexual persons. That's a long sentence. And what I said was that language would be removed from the Book of Discipline just like it was before 1968. It had never been in the Book of Discipline prior to that threshold general conference year. It will add language that intentionally protects the prerogatives of pastors and churches who choose by conscience not to perform or host same-gender weddings and boards of ministry and bishops who would choose not to credential or ordained or ordain homosexual per, um, persons. Central conferences, all those outside the United States who are United Methodists, maintain their own book of discipline, their own contextual practices, and are protected from decisions taken in the U.S. jurisdictional conferences. This plan then would allow United Methodists to address missional context in different ways. The One Church plan in our wisdom as a body is simple to describe. It is simple, more simple, to place into a legislative format and to implement. It would require only changes to the Book of Discipline by removing several phrases and adding paragraphs that would provide helpful protections of pastors, local churches, and annual conferences. With this plan, there would be no need for additional constitutional amendments. And whenever there's an amendment to change the existing constitution of the United Methodist Church, it requires a two-thirds vote in every annual conference. That's a very high bar for any proposed constitutional amendment to pass. And as a sidebar, read the recent um, information we have about the five constitutional amendment proposals that went before annual conferences in the last two years. So there would be no change to the Constitution with the One Church Plan. The plan, uh, excuse me, I'll go back to this. The plan would end the threat and the reality of church trials over same-gender weddings. Boards of ordained ministry already have the authority to discern whom to credential. Local churches already have the authority to establish wedding policies, and that's done through our trustees at the local church level. Pastors already discern whom we will marry or will not marry for many reasons. Okay, do we all agree to that? That's already true and has always been true. 
While some annual conferences and related boards of ministry can adopt new practices, no annual conference uh, must make a further choice or amend a current practice unless they feel called to do so. United Methodist institutions, foundations, universities, seminaries, agencies, and general boards would continue to offer their ministries without significant disruption or costly legal counsel related to their charters or articles of incorporation. That is huge given the broad extent of the furthering of ministries made possible through that listing I just shared with you. West Path, which is the stewarding of pensions for United Methodist pastors and the pension board will be able to continue to offer its services without disruption. Um, pensions. In the constitution of our church, pension provision for retired pastors was a highly held value at the onset of the United Methodist Church. And that has been a promise that we have kept through generations. And the pension board, as you've noted, and now West Path, um, has been working alongside the Council of Bishops and the Commission in order to examine every option, not forcing a recommendation. We will not hear what they think about it. They're their perspective is to serve the United Methodist Church. But in this plan, there would be basically no change in the pension system as we know it. And that is a pretty huge matter. The Central Conference Pension Plan really has just been uh, fully funded in the last four years. And now our Central Conference uh, pastors also have a pension plan and we do not want that disrupted in any way as well. The One Church Plan provides a means to assure that each jurisdictional conference area will support the cost of its own Episcopal leader and offices. Now that would be a new provision and here in the southeast of which we are a part um, the bishops will still be paid the same salary which is set by general conference, not annual conferences and certainly not bishops, but the um, bishops will be assigned in the same way through the jurisdictions or the central conferences and the housing allowances would be managed in a similar way. And so the One Church Plan would continue our historic uh, Episcopal fund to help support the salaries and expenses of bishops in their areas, including the Central Conference bishops, and provide for our ecumenical commitments, which are very strong and have been. This plan will not affect Central Conferences. This plan will not affect central conferences. Central conferences outside the U.S. will have the freedom to be in ministry with their books of discipline adapted to their context. 
and frankly, this has been true um, for quite a while. We just don't hear about it or talk about it in the United Methodist Church. But no central conference would be forced to be in ministry in the ways uh, that might be an option for our United Methodist Church in the United States. And all of the central conference bishops and Episcopal services will continue to be covered outside of the current, uh, or covered by the general church apportionment for that. So this is a, an overview of the plan. <coughs> what you and we have not finally seen is attached to each of those options or legislative pieces like the phrase in the Book of Discipline about homosexuality being incompatible with the Christian faith. If this plan were adopted, that phrase would be removed from the discipline, like it was not in there before 1968. Every nuance of this plan would have an accompanying petition, that's the vehicle, to uh, change the Book of Discipline, and I gave an example of one. But those will be available for the whole church to see after the editing and the translation process. Hopefully by Ju July 8th is what we're being told if all of that you know, comes together. And then you and I can look at all of those pieces and study it and see better than uh, what that might represent for us, what it might imply for our local church, our ministries, and what this might mean for the United Methodist Church uh, globally. The other information that the delegates will have will be in great detail a summary of the pensions from West Path and the General Board of Pensions that will come as additional information. Uh, I know those of you who are reading church press and in regular conversation with other United Methodists have seen some different shadings of report coming out of the Council of Bishops and our recommendation. And Bishop McCleskey and I decided we were at the same meeting <laughs> and our interpretation is that it was very clear that the bishops are recommending one plan and only one plan for the legislative changes before general conference. The other two options are being provided for transparency's sake to help United Methodists see uh, more about what the Commission on the Way Forward struggled with and our experience with them in the Council of Bishops over time. Uh, you'll learn some pros and cons of each option. You'll hear rationale in more detail about why the Council of Bishops came to this recommendation. So now it's time to share these, and you can read this later if you can't go to sleep, but <laughs> you will want to see it, and I hope it will be helpful to you. All right, um, 
now Bishop McCleskey and I are available for questions that you have and we can stay until 7.30 or a little after so we wanted to make sure to leave plenty of time for questions. Things you're hearing, what you're wondering, what does it all mean, how may we be of help to you if we can, we will. Do I understand that uh, it's up to me to decide how I will express my uh, sexuality and who I'll marry. <laughs> I, I wasn't expecting your question, Larry, to come in the form it did. That, that's my hesitation. Well, I'm looking for a replacement for murder, and I want to know if I can stick to one person I can have all my concubines. Brother Larry. <laughs> as the bishops that each pastor active or retired because you still hold your ordination you would discern if you would feel in conscience you could preside over a same gender wedding and if so you're free to do that if the local church where you're related to or serving is not in agreement with that then you could have that service on the somewhere else the basic um, question is i'm the final thought no <laughs> not in the because annual conferences and the book of discipline would still guide us and we haven't made those changes yet so but you would have discernment you would have the freedom of discernment in ways that are not possible now i would say that <laughs> Yeah, now, now there's no question about that unless a, bishop, unless a pastor wants to face uh, a complaint uh, about doing, uh, performing a same-gender uh, wedding. Uh, under this one church plan, the pastor would have exactly the same discretion regarding same-gender weddings that he or she has currently regarding male and female weddings. Right now, each pastor is the final authority on whether he or she will perform a wedding between a man and a woman. That's our call. We counsel with people and uh, we've all had the experience of saying no, I expect, uh, uh, at points. Uh, that would be the case uh, with both uh, male and female and same gender weddings under one church plan. Does this apply just to this issue or to other issues? Are we going to carry this principle out to other things? It applies only to this issue because that's what the general conference ordered. So in that way, it's specific. Yes. I just have one thing to say to both of you and to the Council of Bishops that voted strongly for this, as you say. Thank you. Yes. Very much. So we hear, everybody can hear what you said, Margaret. Right. I know you can't predict what's going to happen. Right. But, and, and I hear that only one plan will be presented, but the other two will be there. Is there any possibility that from the floor of the general conference, someone would make a motion, let's do it this other way? What are the procedures there? <laughs> <laughs> well, 
both traveling. We're both, yeah, we, we, we both had the experience of presiding at General Conference and... Uh, and survived to survived tell about it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, General Conference sets its own rules of uh, procedure at the beginning of each General Conference. I understand that at this special session, the rules will be the rules of the uh, 2016 General Conference. Now, I think that's correct. Under those rules, it is always possible for a motion to come to substitute something else for what's before us or to amend something else, amend what's before us in some way. Uh, so if those rules are followed, uh, amendments, substitutions uh, could, uh, could be proposed. Uh, I expect that they will be proposed and then the General Conference would, uh, would follow its rules of debate and uh, decision making. I concur and there are ongoing um, efforts now with the Commission on General Conference which is an elected body that plans for everything relating to a General Conference and the Judicial Council about what might properly be given to the delegates ahead of time and what not to be, shall we say, piled on to the faithful work that's happened. So some of those decisions will come outside of the Council of Bishops and outside of the Commission, and we're waiting to hear from those. Uh, let me, I'll add just one thing to that. There, the Judicial Council is meeting uh, in a few weeks to make a declaratory decision at the request of the bishops. A call session of the General Conference is kind of like a call church conference. We had a call church conference here a couple of weeks ago, and it's only to deal with the purpose for which the conference is called. General Conference, if it's a call session, can deal with only what uh, it's called for. The declaratory decision uh, is whether or not other petitions may be presented prior to the convening of General Conference from uh, anybody who wants to present one and uh, we'll have to wait on that decision to, to see uh, where they come down on that but be that as it may there's still the possibility of amendments and substitutes and so forth. Mm -hmm. When you have a legislative body that uses parliamentary procedure and some people in the body are so very gifted <laughs> at <laughs> getting their point across or um, trying to really push a, a legislative proposal, then it probably will happen. Margaret, what was your comment? I wanted to... I could say this sounds reasonable. This sounds reasonable. I just wanted us to hear all Margaret's voice. And I saw a hand over here, yes. I think I, think I know the answer to my question, but you know, when Ken Carr spoke, he talked about his, his textualization. And it seemed as if he was saying at that time that the language could be added back in. And and if I understood you correctly, you were saying that it may be true that the, that the what did you call it, the, the African church, the central conference, the central conference will have an option to add language that might be different from our language. But my question is, within the United States, can a conference put language back in or will this, if this language is removed from the discipline, can it be contextualized within this country and this, as it's being presented? No, only the general conference could do that. And it, 
general at every successive general conference. Is that a national body or a regional It's a body? global body meeting once every four years. So. Will everybody vote you have to vote at this conference? Will everybody be allowed to vote? Oh yes, they're duly elected delegates. Right. Yes, they're in on this vote. And central conference delegates now comprise forty percent of the total number of delegates. The delegates to general conference are allocated on the on a, a proportional basis depending on the size of the conference they come from, and the church is growing fastest in Africa. Um, Lewis is whispering about well, what about diversity within central conferences including the African church and we can assure you that in ongoing friendships and relationships uh, there is no one um, model or mantra for the African United Methodist Church and its representations and I think some of our African friends are getting angry at people who are saying uh, you're, you are not making your own decisions, you're being affected too much by caucus groups, you, um, etc. These people, just like us, are wise, they love their church, they love the faith that has been given to them, often through the missionary context, and they will think and decide for themselves. <laughs> Russ, I, 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 I just had a little, my little discomfort if we were, for our, for our gay friends in Africa, if we in this country are able to do it and say it's okay, and then in Africa and the Philippines we're saying to our gay friends there, it's not okay by the church, that there's a, there's a real imbalance about, that, that just, that I don't know how to deal with that in myself. You know, if we were to vote this, and then we, we'd be sending a dual message. It's kind of like it's okay for us, but you have to decide for yourself. Well, and and it, it, the context in Africa is so different from here. Yeah, uh, in the, in this country, uh, we have a Supreme Court decision that says same-sex marriage is a, a legal uh, thing, and. Some African countries, homosexuality is a capital offense. And so the context varies so much. But having said that, I go back a second what, you, what, what Charlene said. The, there, there is no, you can't, you can't paint all Africans with the same brush. So in other words, over time, um, African people in their own cultures and countries can choose or not to change the laws of their countries. Right now, if it's illegal to be a homosexual, much less be involved in a same gender relationship, um, the implications of that are, in some cases, life and death. And we must give attention to that here in the US. That is their reality. Uh, I'm, I'm still a little confused about the question that Nancy asked a moment ago and the answer. I uh, understand that all of the 
anti, where it's now, we have classified as anti-gay language in discipline in the U.S. when you take it out of the discipline. Mm -hmm. Now, how much power does an annual conference have? If one annual conference voted to say, we do not want to ever ordain a gay person in this annual conference, or we do not want to perform a gay marriage in this annual conference, regardless of the fact that the language is not, not in the discipline, do they have the power to, out, to in effect, outlaw uh, those, those actions? I mean, can they pass uh, that in, in an annual conference to, to prevent uh, gay marriage being performed in that, in that conference? Or uh, you can see where I'm going there. How much power does the annual conference have? Well, the annual conference is always subservient to the general conference action. So we keep that principle in mind. What we do know is that annual conference boards administrate in determining standards and fitness for ministry uh, will come out with their recommendations to which an annual conference could, um, I suppose, challenge that. But the point is that every local church pastor still has the option in the U.S. and in Europe and the Philippines and Africa, if they wanted, not in Africa, but in Philippines and many parts of Europe, to officiate without penalty and to do so by your own Christian conscience or not, and both would be honored. By the same token, the local church can decide uh, as we do now about hosting weddings and that would require a vote and this this hurts our hearts to think about this congregation having to vote I'll be candid about that um, we would hope that would not be a um, you know a fracturing matter for our church here but your pastor, all ordained persons, would still have the option of officiating or not, whether it's in the local church or a different setting. But I don't see how an annual conference can overturn. I agree. I, I don't think an, an annual conference board of ordained ministry could decide not to ordain gay persons. Uh, but I don't think under this proposal, as I've read it, I don't think there, an annual conference would have any authority to say to a pastor, you cannot officiate at a same-gender wedding. The annual conference could not prohibit that. There are protections in the plan to protect that pastor's right to officiate or not. So that comes back to the question of the decision that, that Larry was asking earlier. It's, it's the pastor's and the annual conference could not uh, compel or prohibit that action. Bill? Uh, this is a little similar. My son, uh, his business is entertaining at weddings. Okay. <laughs> My son is an entertainer at weddings. That's his business. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, uh, where are the weddings going on? He says, well, always on mountaintops and at parks and in barns except for gay and lesbian weddings, they're held in the church. 
Yes, our, our gay friends and family members and church members, it's not surprising to me that persons might want to have a wedding ceremony and celebration in their chosen faith community. George? I'm appointed to retirement, so this, uh, this is... And you failed. <laughs> Along with a number of others I was here. Perhaps the primary yeah. witness of that. <laughs> I received an email just a few weeks ago from a friend who said, George, you flunked retirement. <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, uh, I am very decisive about this. I, I'm on the progressive side and so forth. But I, I think of a, a number of people uh, who wouldn't want to be uh, so constrained in the appointing process that they might be agnostic so that they could go and serve this kind of church that, that may be opposed to same-sex marriages. But they, they would at least want to be open to going to any church. And they may be very strong evangelical in their in their gifts and preaching and so forth. They don't want to be held back from going to any of those churches. So that the only churches that they could be received in would be the progressive churches. So uh, can uh, will, will this arrangement require one to state one's position as I am stating mine? Or can one become agnostic on this issue? I think in terms of the, uh, the candidacy and ordination process, that would depend upon the Board of Ordained Ministry and the questions they ask of the candidates. Uh, and uh, then if, if they wanted to press these kinds of questions, then it would be hard to remain agnostic. I don't think there's a Fifth Amendment plea <laughs> in the ordination process. Uh, if the question were not asked, then the person that the freedom, I guess, to say as much or as little as one wanted to uh, about the issue, uh, that's about as good as I can come up with uh, right now. I, I'll personalize this a bit. Um, it saddens me to acknowledge for our church that this one issue would be the one question that local churches or a pastor might want to try to dodge or push him or herself to be untruthful about it. Because right now, we do not ask each pastor at the local level when you have your meet the pastor meeting, what is your stance on war when that is incompatible with Christian teaching, which is in the Book of Discipline? What is your stance on, on capital punishment? What is your stance on many issues of the day? We do not ask those questions. We trust that our pastors will be led by their faith and their conscience and would not force those 
positions on their congregations. And we, we honor that, and we live together quite well in the midst of diversity. And as an active bishop, I never had any pastor come to me and say, you know, I can't go, please don't send me to this kind of church because of what I know they're doing there or what they stand for. I wish some of them would have, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't ever this issue. So. Any, anything else? You know, after July, we'll have a lot more information for everybody to chew on. Yes, Margaret. What if the pastor himself is getting? Well, you mean like some of our pastors are now who most often have to hide in the closet of non-disclosure for protection of their own ministry and, and so forth. Um, I think it would be an individual choice and perhaps the difference would be that pastors now, both men and women, who have come out as gay to their local church or their DS or sometimes a bishop, um, would be removed from the chargeable offense. And that could be a great relief um, to the whole body uh, of the church. What would be chargeable offenses under this new plan? Well, the charge of, there's a list of things, uh, and I can't. I mean, try on, on this issue, on, this, on these issues. Well, this the, uh, right now in the list of chargeable offenses, uh, one is practices incompatible with Christian teaching. That's the way it's phrased in the list of chargeable offenses. Well, I guess that means if a pastor went to war, they could have a complaint brought against them, uh, because war is the only other thing the Book of Discipline lists as incompatible with Christian teaching. But it doesn't specifically address homosexuality in the chargeable offenses, except to say anyone who practices anything incompatible with Christian teaching. So if that language is removed from uh, uh, the other place of the Book of Discipline, my assumption is, and this is part of all these details that we're talking about that are, that are in the editing, that it would be removed from the list of chargeable offenses as well. And that would leave us then with no chargeable offense around the issue of sexuality. Of, uh, sexuality. Immorality is listed as a chargeable offense. Crime is a chargeable offense. Pornography. Uh, uh, um, undermining the uh, ministry of another pastor is a chargeable offense. Uh, I, we've, uh, well, that's it. <laughs> uh, there are a number of chargeable offenses like that. There's not a long list, just maybe half a dozen. Uh, but there would be no specific listing of, of uh, anything related to uh, homosexuality. And the, the current uh, provision is that a pastor may not, without penalty, um, officiate at same-gender weddings. That would come out. And no United Methodist Church can host a same-gender wedding. That would come out. Those are not chargeable offenses in the same way, but it's the negative prohibition language that would be removed with this recommendation. And that the other two options, that would not be the case. We never said that, but 
on either of the other options. Yeah, yeah, the language stays in on both the other options, the, uh, the uh, connectional conference model and the, and the traditionalist. I'm, I'm reminded of something I read just uh, yesterday in, in this regard. We're talking about chargeable offenses, which is complaints and church trials and all of that. Uh, Bishop Carter spoke earlier this week to a gathering of the Association of United Methodist Annual Conference Chancellors. That's the lawyers for each annual conference. Every, every bishop uh, in his or her conference has a chancellor elected by the conference who is an attorney uh, whose role is to assist the bishop and the conference with legal matters. Bishop Carter spoke to that group uh, earlier this week. He went through this whole process with them and the Chancellor's Association, Chancellors of all annual conferences in the United Methodist Church, voted without dissent to uh, go on record in favor of the One Church Plan. That to me is a high Which school. nobody asked them to do. Yeah, nobody asked them to do it. Are you sure the chancellor from Mississippi was there? <laughs> I, I didn't so. see the list call. It just said they were for me. That's a great question. <laughs> if the uh, one church plan were not to be passed, would it then go to the traditional plan? And if that were not passed, would it go to the, or if the one church doesn't pass, it could be any of those things, I believe, in the sense that if one of the other two options became the main motion and it were adopted, then it would be clear what the implications of that would be. Um, if none of the three options received the majority support, then it would die and we would be back to where we are in the 2016 Book of Discipline. Um, and supposedly some hybrid or de novo motion could come from the floor that somehow might catch enough inspiration or attention from the delegates. I would find that very hard to believe because the camps are so organized. But, you know, we'll see. Yes? Is it majority vote or three-thirds? Majority. 50% uh, plus one. 800-something delegates. Yes? Are they voting on one package? Are there 19 different votes for each one of those proposals? Or what? Um, It'll depend on how we're guided with the rules for this conference, the rule of how you process the motions, the petitions. Um, there might be some people who want to, I move that we adopt the one church plan in totality, and that would be debated and cleared out. Um, I think it would not be improbable for some people to pick a part of it and do it piecemeal. We don't know. Bishops have to be prepared for anything. And um, active bishops will be the presiding bishops, and retired bishops may be invited to be the uh, 
in effect, the parliamentarians. And the bishop who's presiding at a session can ask two colleagues, either active or retired, to be your parliamentarians. And we both had that experience. And it's quite wonderful to still use your skill set there and to be whispering information to your brother or sister Haney. She was an excellent parliamentarian for me. <laughs> Are we moving in this is this issue and other issues, particularly with trustees and laws in the countries, yeah. to having multiple disciplines? We already have them, yeah. um, but probably yes. And what the general conference will act on will be called the general book of discipline which may then be adapted but only in the central conferences the u.s conferences cannot adapt the general book correct correct well, question can, yeah we don't have the freedom can we end up are we going to end up with jurisdictional disciplines mm -hmm. not a, not in the one church plan it would not allow that if we went to the connectional conference model which would be theologically aligned conferences, then uh, you would have multiple books of discipline within the U.S. But, but if, if, if we stay with the one church, uh, we would have, as we have now, the one for the U.S. with adaptations in the central conferences. You know, this has never been our reality before to have this kind of special call conference out of cycle of the quadrennium so we're all learning as we go we're all i think wanting to be faithful and in interpreting what we've understood has happened and what is before us and what will be before us and um, we do, we're doing the best we can but i'd like to give just a brief witness which i've certainly shared with lawrence that i just felt in the Chicago meeting that the spirit of our very diverse group was absolutely wonderful. At the tables, in meal settings, hallway conversations, covenant groups, I have felt a lot of um, stronger listening, a lot more gentle responses to one another, uh, genuine caring expressed, and it doesn't mean that people necessarily change their minds, but the spirit among us has been good and positive. And I have to believe that's the Holy Spirit at work among us. And so I give God thanks for that. I, I agree with that 100%. Uh, it was a remarkable meeting. I think in terms of what Charlene just described, the most, uh, the, the, the best spirited meeting that I can remember in 22 years in the Council of Bishops. And we've dealt with this issue before when it was not, that was not the case. The other thing I would add uh, is that it's wonderful to be part of a congregation like this one, where we can come and have this kind of discussion around this issue. Uh, that's something to celebrate and I want to commend the congregation uh, for that 
and uh, thank you all for the privilege of uh, being part of it. We're not members of this congregation. We're members of a very strange church, <laughs> the Council of Bishops. <laughs> That's where our church membership is. I mean, it's strange because our church only meets twice a year. <laughs> but this is our congregation. I think I speak for us both when I say that. And thank you for the privilege of sharing. Thank you.